Welcome to Disrupting Obesity. I'm Charlotte Skeins, and I'll be sharing ways to regain control over your body and lose an extreme amount of weight naturally. Being fat is about so much more than just the food. It's about your relationship with food. That means that dealing with your weight is about more than just the food too. You have to change that relationship. You have to start disrupting obesity. I don't like the word rules because I feel like people hear it and then immediately get their backs up. And it makes sense, right? Most of us don't like rules, especially when it comes to what we eat. So I don't do rules. What I do is safety nets. It sounds like a simple semantic difference, but I promise it's not. It's a mindset thing and it's a big deal. Rules feel restrictive. They're a no. Safety nets are freeing. They're a yes. Think about a trapeze artist. The safety net gives them the freedom to fly because they know they're not going to smash their face. I think you need to do the same thing with extreme weight loss. You have to spread as many safety nets beneath yourself as you need so that you have the freedom to soar too. I can really push back when I feel too confined or restricted, especially if I'm dealing with rules that somebody else put into place. It doesn't feel like a choice. I had over 200 pounds to lose. I already felt like I was backed into a corner and I tried. I tried restrictions. I tried lots of rules. It didn't work. I tried other people's rules. I tried making my own. I'd get a few days or even a couple of weeks in and then it would just be too much. Something would happen and I'd start to justify shitty choices and unnecessary overeating again. I'd find reasons and excuses to let myself do eating that I knew wasn't going to help. It was an incredibly bad shift at work so I needed the burritos. I'd done so well with my diet that I deserved that big dinner on Friday night. I can look back now and see how distorted my perspective was that I would reward myself for doing well with my weight loss by eating foods that sabotaged the shit out of my weight loss. It feels like it's so easy to see now, right? But at the time, I couldn't see it at all. There was zero self-awareness on this. And I can see now how broken my relationship with food was. It's hard to understand what I was thinking other than I clearly wasn't ready to find a long-term solution and I was sabotaging myself like crazy. It took a long time for me to believe that I deserve to live in a healthy body. A long time. I was so caught up in feeling bad about myself and my weight that I didn't have any more mental space to deal with anything else. And I didn't figure this stuff out in the moment. I figured it out after I'd lost more than 100 pounds more than once and after I almost died. I'm waiting for the moment where I stop feeling awkward when I talk about this, when I don't feel like I'm whining or complaining or bragging somehow, and I don't want to do any of those things. But this is such a weird thing to talk about. It's so painfully awkward for me, and I'm so self-conscious about it that I have pushed recording and releasing this episode back five times now. This was supposed to be episode 16. Seriously, 16. It is now episode number 21. There are parts of it I'm pretty comfortable with, and I've got some road answers that I give when people ask me certain questions. But digging down into this is not always my favorite thing to do. So thank you for bearing with me here. I went through some crazy medical shit when I was in the hospital for five months after my third son was born. Stuff people usually don't survive. And it's hard to talk about for the super concrete reason that I don't remember some of it. Like I've blacked out a solid six to eight weeks and then there are a whole lot of individual days and clusters of days that are gone too. But it's such an amazing function of our brains that they can just erase 
whole chunks of time. Gone. You don't need that. It'll do you more harm than good. Gone. And like, I knew when I started to come out of that six to eight week period that it was gone. It was instant. Like it, it didn't disappear later on down the road or something. And I am so all right with it. I, I really can't even tell you how good I am with not knowing. I have no desire at all to remember what went on in the weeks and days I don't remember. What I do remember is horrifying. So I don't think I need to add to that. My attitude from the very beginning, like I was still in the hospital very beginning, my attitude has been that if my brain is letting me remember what I do, as bad as it is, then I can't even imagine and I definitely don't want to know what my brain has decided is too much for me. Because it decided I could handle a fair bit and I really wish I'd been in on the negotiations. It's hard for me to talk about all of this because it was kind of boring. Sick people don't do much and people who are as sick as I was don't really do anything except try to stay alive. And I'm not even sure how active a participant I was in a lot of it. More than 90% of my time for months on end was spent lying pretty much perfectly still, breathing. I was so deep in the fight, I'm not sure what I was fighting. Like, I don't have names or words for all of the things that happened to me and were done to me, my diagnoses and what went wrong. I wasn't fully aware then either while it was going on. Most things were explained to me just after the fact. So if things happened to me and there was very little choice involved. That's not totally true, but the stuff I have the hardest time talking about is the mindset side to it all. And talking about it feels like being self-aggrandizing or taking credit that isn't mine to take. It makes me sound and feel like an arrogant ass hat, frankly, and I'm not sure how far we're going to get with that, but we're going to try. The only choice I had was in how I chose to cope with what was going on, the things I chose to think about, the parts of myself I shut down. And I wasn't on my own. I had a team of psychologists who worked with me from the very beginning. Plus, I was in a teaching hospital. So there were also the residents. And with psych, the docs were on a six-week rotation. So I went through a lot of them. And I was a really good teaching case because there was just so much going on. I want to be able to speak about this confidently and coherently, but it is just not easy. I think it's because the trauma is so big. I haven't hit a point where I can really dive into this stuff without getting seriously triggered. Even thinking about it as I was prepping for this episode was really hard. Obviously, I've pushed it back five times. So I really do want to thank you for bearing with me while I figure out how to do this. Even when I'd been in hospital for nearly three months, couldn't move, and I was still nowhere out of the woods, I knew I had to find a way to use this trauma to help other people. I had no clue that September as I was lying there what I was going to do, but I knew I would find it and I knew I had to do whatever it took to make it happen. I can remember having a conversation with myself about it and I do realize that a chunk of it, probably a good chunk of it, is survivor's guilt, but I'm okay with that. I've waited out and it's really all right. I knew how lucky I was to be alive and how hard everyone was working to keep me alive I knew my case was really challenging. I knew I was really challenging. I knew there wasn't always consensus on what to do, how to do it, or what fire to put out first. And the fires just kept coming. So many complications. They'd, they'd figure something out and think it was in hand and something else would pop up that they weren't expecting. Or they would just get it figured out and then something else would pop up that they weren't expecting and they'd just have more things on the list to deal with. 
And that happened again and again and again. I was put back into an ICU eight days before I was discharged. So it just, it didn't stop. There were so many times when my room was full of doctors, so full that the interns and residents had to crowd outside to hear what was going on. Just full of doctors from all kinds of specialties, gastroenterology, cardiothoracic, general surgery, maternal medicine, endocrinology. And those are just the ones off the top of my head because I don't want to go down this road too far in my brain. I'm what they call a zebra in hospitals. And if you like medical dramas, you might be familiar with the term. So they tell new doctors that when they hear hoofbeats, they should think horses, not zebras. So it's like, always go with the most common explanation, the most likely explanation for things. But when your head has just finished learning all that new stuff, you're going to have a tendency to see this that stuff, right? And look for it. So new doctors in particular have a tendency, I guess, to see a list of symptoms like runny nose, sore throat, and bloodshot eyes. And they start to look for like a weird Amazonian parasite that they read about, which is super exciting and very interesting. But it turns out it's the flu or whatever, because it's a common thing. You hear the hoofbeats and it's a horse. It's usually a horse. More than nine times out of 10, it's going to be a friggin' horse. Yeah, I'm, I'm the zebra. I get the weird complications and the interactions and the side effects. I seem to get jammed into a less than 4% category a lot of the time. So it's a good thing I like stripes. It was mid-June and I was 32 weeks pregnant. Our oldest had just turned three on the weekend. His little brother was 15 months old. I was having a rough pregnancy, but all of my pregnancies had been hard. It was never anything that was like unmanageable, but it wasn't easy. My morning sickness lasted all three trimesters for me, all three pregnancies, and it lasted all day. I didn't have the hyperemesis gravidarum thing like Amy Schumer or the princess, but it wasn't fun. 25 out of the 36 months immediately before I got sick. That's how many of them I was throwing up. 25 out of 36. I had preeclampsia with our first son and I was on bed rest for the last four, almost five weeks of my pregnancy. I had polyhydromnios with our second son. That's when there's too much amniotic fluid and the baby bobs around like a cork, but it feels more like slams around. And it was pancreatitis the third time, which wasn't actually a pregnancy-related thing at all. But I got a super fun kind. I couldn't get the normal kind. I had severe necrotizing pancreatitis. It's fatal a lot, and I'm so unbelievably lucky to be here. When I say that, or that I almost died a bunch, it wasn't like on TV where there's an event and people start running into the room with a defibrillator. I mean, there were some really, really bad times and some incredibly close calls, but I didn't have a seeing the light down the tunnel moment. I was just on the edge. I was in this weird gray area. I mean, death's a black line for sure, but gray kind of ombres over. Like, there's no white line to signify that you're definitely alive and going to stay that way. So I was shuffling around in that gray. Sometimes I was moving closer to white, but I was in the gray for a long time. And most of that time, I was closer to the black line. So that's what I mean when I say I almost died and almost checked out a bunch. I was just riding that line. Being 100 plus pounds overweight didn't cause my pancreatitis, but it didn't help anything either. And it 
definitely made everything worse. I can't think of a single part of my ride on the pancreatitis pain train that wasn't made worse by my weight. Seriously, that extra weight turned what would have been a nightmare no matter what my size was into something hellish beyond words. I think that's a big part of why I'm so passionate about this, why I think it's so important that we talk about obesity in a way that's actually helpful but realistic at the same time. I respect the body positivity movement. I understand where they're coming from. No one deserves to be discriminated against or shamed for their size. I've been on the receiving end of both a lot, and it really sucks. A lot. I was fat but healthy. I looked good. I wasn't fit, but I didn't have any mobility issues. I didn't have diabetes. I wasn't pre-diabetic. I wasn't on any medication. I was healthy. I put a little more than half of my original 201-pound loss back on, but I'd done it over four years and three pregnancies and I was confident I could get it off. I'd already lost 200 pounds once. It sucked, but I wasn't scared of dropping 100 pounds. I wasn't happy about it, but I wasn't intimidated. I knew what to do, and I knew it worked. I knew exactly how to consistently lose weight. So I thought I had time. But then I was on the floor at the top of my stairs first thing one morning in so much pain, I couldn't move, and I wasn't sure how I was gonna get back up. Just before midnight that day, I was on a helicopter. I'd been in and out of consciousness for hours. I don't remember most of the airlift getting on, but not off. I remember the race down the hallway on the gurney to the OR for my crash C-section. I remember wondering who was screaming and then realizing it was me and thinking, this only happens on TV. I remember the face of the anesthesiologist and then I was out. Not a great day. Our son was born just minutes after midnight. And that was a great day. That was his day. And his days got better and better. And he went home after 42 days in the NICU. I stayed for five months. And for a long time, I just kept getting sicker and sicker. On top of the necrotizing pancreatitis, which is a pancreas that's so infected, it starts to die. And the tissue liquefies and it's super gross, but my abdomen filled with a disgusting mixture of pus and liquid dead pancreas, sorry, like more than four liters of it. So for my Ontario listeners, I'm not sure which other provinces do the whole bagged milk thing, but if your province does, I'm sure you're imagining picking up a bag of milk at the moment. And yeah, that's part of what I had going on, just part of it. For my non-bagged milk listeners, That's 8.6 pounds or four kilos. Sloshing around in my abdomen, but more of like a sticky sludge that was coating things. Sorry. And not just like innocuously floating around because the pressure of all that fluid in places where it shouldn't be, I think it must have been the pressure that caused the pain. And the pain was insane. Completely insane. I don't have a particularly high threshold, but pancreas pain is other level shit. And pain wasn't new to me going into this. So on top of the severe necrotizing pancreatitis and all the other stuff that goes along with your body fighting a major infection like that while recovering from a C-section and not the planned kind, but the holy shit, we got to do this right fucking now kind, I developed Ogilvy syndrome, which is another rare disease, like right around 0.1% rare. And it's no fun at all either. I haven't even scratched the surface with the stuff I had going on because, again, boring and all the other reasons I listed off before and all the stuff 
that I just said happened in the first few weeks. Two of the three things happened on the very first day, but it gives you an idea of just how quickly things can slide downhill, even when you're otherwise healthy, aside from your weight. So I respect the body positivity movement, and at the same time, I've got some issues with it. One of them is that I believe you can love yourself and love your body and still want it to change. They're not mutually exclusive. We do this with our mental and emotional selves all the time. Why can't we do it with our physical selves too? We seek out emotional and mental growth all the time and we applaud ourselves for it. What's wrong with wanting that for our physical selves? You can love your body and still want to change it. You should never be shamed for your body. At the same time, I think we need to be very careful about praising and encouraging super and hyper obesity. Telling people it's healthy and safe can be dangerous. And that's my second big issue. Sure, being obese may not directly cause a catastrophic illness, and I'm not a doctor, so I'm not even going to try and make a common sense argument against what I just said, but please believe me when I say that I really, really want to, but fine. Let's lay common sense to the side and accept the supposition that being obese may not directly cause a catastrophic illness. But if one hits when you're obese, please believe me when I tell you that everything just got exponentially harder. Everything. Every single thing you can think of that could be made harder by being extremely sick and obese. And then for every one of those, there are at least five things you're not even considering. But I promise you they're all going to be harder. Much, much harder. My weight almost never came up when I was in the hospital. It's not like there was much point. It was what it was. Drains and tubes had to go in whether they had to push them through more flesh or not. I had to have CT scans, even if I only just barely fit into the scanner. And if you thought the SeaWorld style hoist they used to move me around in that I was talking about in episode 15 sounded scary, and I want to remind you that I was only 100 pounds overweight, that wasn't when I was 200 pounds overweight, if all that sounded scary, Try lying flat on your back with your arms, legs, and shoulders strapped down and going into a CAT scan while you can't move and throwing up during imaging. It only felt like drowning because that's what was technically happening. I had to find ways to insulate myself mentally when I was in the hospital. I had to find ways to keep myself going. I had to be very careful what I thought about. Kind of like I'm trying to insulate myself right now but it's less easy when I'm rooting through memories that I've worked very hard to forget and trying to find examples that will show you what this was like. At one point, my psych team basically mandated that people stop talking to me about my boys. And I was told to stop thinking about them as much as I possibly could. Seriously, like nobody, not family, friends, medical personnel, nobody was allowed to talk to me about them. A huge part of the problem and it'll be right around now that I start really sounding like an arrogant douchebag. But seriously, a, a big part of the problem was that I had a pretty decent working understanding of infant brain development and developmental stages. And I knew what it meant for my boys that I wasn't there, what it was doing to their developing brains. So psych wanted to shut it down, not because I was wrong, but because I was right. But I was so weak physically and so close to that black line that thinking about what I was missing, what the long-term consequences would be for them because I was gone, 
It had very real physical consequences for me. I couldn't sit, stand, walk, or even roll over onto my side. Tubes were doing everything for me that involved a quote-unquote bodily function, including eating and drinking. So basically, I was stripped of the ability to do anything other than lie there and breathe. And even then, I was on full-time oxygen pretty much every single day of my entire stay in both of the hospitals that I was in. Most of the time, I was too focused on whatever procedure or test or therapy I was going through to think about anything other than what was happening right in the moment. My survival hinged on staying focused and letting myself think about whatever I was trying to get through and the future that was waiting for me once I was going home. And that was it. All I could think about was whatever I had to do to get home. So the words I said again and again where there is no backward, there is only forward. Thinking about the life that was behind me would have killed me. And I don't mean that figuratively, like, wow, that exam was a killer. I mean that thinking about what I was missing with my boys at home, the life that I had led right up until the morning that I got sick, had very, very real physical consequences for me, not just mental and emotional ones. Hysterics and vomiting, despondency and fevers, And when you're as sick as I was, any of those things can be dangerous. Sometimes they can be fatal. I was fighting for my life, so I had to stay focused on forward. What it took to get there and what lay ahead. I had to have a psychological safety net. Why am I telling you this? How can an example as extreme as mine possibly apply to you? It's simple. It's harsh, but it's simple. You're fighting for your life too. Not in the minute-to-minute sense that I was for those first several weeks, or even in the relearning how to sit and walk and roll over way that came for me later on. But you are fighting for your life. I mean, we can look at this from any way we want to, right? I hear people say all the time, yeah, but I could walk out my front door tomorrow and get hit by a bus. Sure. Or not. What happens when you don't? Any one of us could win the lottery too. I get a little sad when I hear people talking about how they don't want to live into their 80s anyway, that there's not really much point to losing the weight. Their best years will be behind them. Well, says who? And really, that's one hell of a decision to make now when you're already at least semi-unhealthy and scared as hell. I've been to the end. I got to ride the black line and let me tell you the only thing you want is more time. It took me just over two years almost two and a half years to lose over 200 pounds. Even if it only adds two more years to the end, I will gladly take them. It's also not fair or very smart to make assumptions about your future quality of life based on your current quality of life. You're in no mental or physical condition to make those kinds of assessments. And you know what? Just like when I was in hospital, you are fully immersed in your experience. And losing a lot of weight is a very isolating experience. What I went through was hard for everyone in my life and every person involved in my care. But I was the only person who didn't get a break from it. Everybody else got to go home. You don't really get a break from your experience either. Even if you take a break and eat whatever you want and go completely off the rails, you're still having to deal with it as an obese person. The depression that often comes along with obesity doesn't help any of this. Depression impedes our ability to accurately predict future outcomes, especially positive ones. When you're feeling negative, 
everything else starts to seem negative too, even stuff that hasn't happened yet. And that's another parallel with my experience in the hospital. It probably goes without saying that I was deeply depressed, very deeply depressed, which was totally normal for the situation. Sight kept telling me that anybody who was in my position would be clinically depressed. It was situational. It was a very normal reaction to almost dying, fighting for your life, being torn away from your family, having a newborn who'd met you like a half a dozen times. So depression sometimes makes sense. And when you're obese, you've got reasons to be depressed too. Fears and limitations that make things more challenging. When you can't even imagine walking to the bathroom without getting winded, it's really hard to imagine yourself as a fit and productive senior citizen. But your perspective changes as you lose weight. Your ability to do more physically and to be more emotionally present shifts the way you feel about yourself. And that doesn't come from a number on the scale. It comes from sitting back and recognizing that by getting your weight under control, you're also doing what you need to do to change your mindset. They talk a lot about how diets fail because people don't make a lifestyle change. It's more than that. Diets fail because people don't make a mindset change. They don't change the way they're talking to themselves generally. And just like I needed psychological safety nets when I was in the hospital and I needed food-related safety nets when I was losing my weight, you need safety nets too. You need to have not rules, but you need to have something in place that's going to keep you from giving up, that will help you to stay on track so that you get where you want to go to a healthy body. So stop telling yourself no. Stop putting yourself in a position where your only choice is to eat something you're going to regret later or telling yourself no. Because it's not easy to tell yourself no in those situations. Clearly, we're locked in an obesity crisis with no end in sight. If we could tell ourselves no consistently, there wouldn't be an obesity crisis. And telling yourself no is super discouraging. It locks you in a negative mindset, and that's not going to help you get the weight off. You need to be as positive as you can. Find ways to tell yourself yes. Yes to the pre-portioned snacks you keep in the fridge for when you're feeling like you need to eat. Yes to eating whatever you want, just less of it, because that's the ultimate safety net. And not because of the food, but because of the mindset shift that telling yourself you can eat whatever you want makes. You're creating an environment of yes for yourself, which is going to make you feel safe and cared for. But it also means that you're thinking about what you're eating. You're trying to avoid setting off binges caused by desperation. You're trying to take accountability for what you're doing and make small incremental changes. You need safety nets. Things you put in place so you have the freedom to jump. You don't need rules. They're not going to set you free. Safety nets. Make the mindset shift. Keep trying. Keep tracking. Don't be intimidated and don't give up. You have totally got this. Thank you for listening to Disrupting Obesity. If you know it's time to take back control, lose the weight and keep it off, Reach out to me privately with a direct message on Instagram that says ready so you can start disrupting obesity.